Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 81, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today, we're talking with MSU Deer Labs, Dr. Bronson Strickland, for this next DIY Report mini-series, and we'll be covering deer movement, so stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Hope everyone out there is doing well. Happy Wednesday to you. It is here, finally. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, you should be. If your season hasn't opened yet, you should be able to hop into a tree stand come Saturday, and that is exciting. Everyone will be, uh, you know, season will be open, and uh, I'm sure we'll be getting a lot of social media pictures of, of big deer hitting the ground. I fortunately, you know, here in the eastern part of PA, I know I've mentioned a couple times, we've... We open a little bit early. There's two WMUs on the eastern part of the state that come in in mid-September. And uh, if you've been following along, there's a, a new piece of swamp ground I've been kind of interested in and been checking out, a piece of public ground. And uh, had a, I've had just a handful of hunts in there um, and, and hung a camera. And I did actually pull a camera card during a hunt this past weekend and um, am very excited with what I have, have seen. If you've followed any of, the, of my Instagram stories, over this past weekend, you, you you likely saw a few pictures of, of those deer, and uh, and so I've been kind of in uh, what I might call a little bit of freak out mode, you know, because uh, these deer are are big deer, uh, they're mature deer, um, you know, especially for Pennsylvania, and I would say even in you know a lot of other what you would consider to be good buck states, these these would be considered good deer as well. Um, so really excited about the caliber of deer that I've run into. And uh, John and I, I'm sure here soon we'll have a catch up and we'll kind of fully cover um, cover that information. And what I'm kind of the pieces, the puzzle pieces that I'm putting together to try to put on a 
put on put on a hunt for these uh for for these bad boys, these swamp donkeys, if you will. But before we do all of that, we do have a cool show today, a killer show. We have uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland from MSU Deer Lab, and they have a Deer University podcast. So if you're not kind of plugged into that podcast, I'd definitely check that out. Um, he was so kind to come on. He's going to class the place up a little bit with a with a PhD, first doctor we've had on the. Uh, that we've had on the show. So that's, that's exciting. But, uh, you know, what his podcast does and what, what he does is he's a deer biologist, um, at uh, Mississippi state university, kind of exploring and studying anything and everything you can kind of think of, um, related to deer. And this time of year, you know, the one thing that we as hunters start to really kind of think about is deer movement. How are deer moving? How are they using terrain? How are they using weather? Uh, things like that, you know, when we kind of set up our strategies and our plans for how we're going to hunt specific deer or, you know, specific properties and so forth. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have someone come on and talk about deer movement, not just from a hunter's perspective, but also from a research and biology perspective. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Dr. Strickland is a, a hunter as well. So he has those kind of, um, uh, that, that credibility to his background as well. Not only does he study them from a scientific and research perspective and bio biological perspective, but he also sees things, you know, anecdotally, um, that we witnessed as well. And he can kind of help, you know, bust some myths or put some rhyme to reason as to why we might see certain things. So the plan here is it's a three-part series. Um, you know, the way we kind of approached it was, you know, really the first part is talking about deer movement from a very high level. So just very high level kind of movement patterns, why they move, the types of movement in, in seasonal move movement that we'll see and so forth. And we're really kind of talking about more from like a, a, a from a group dynamic, you know, per se, you know, deer as a whole. The second part that we get into part two of this series will be more specifically talking about how singular deer move and how they respond to different things and what creates their different types of types of movement. And then the third and final part of this series is we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the science and the why behind the rut and the movement that we see there and what is actually going on, the timing of those types of things, you know, what time is the rut actually happening at different parts of the country and, you know, is it consistent, is it not consistent, does moon affect it, does weather affect it, you know, all these different things we're going to talk about in part three that are, it's relative to the rut and why we see what we see during that time of year. So I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Strickland on. Um, I think it's a really cool conversation. I think it's definitely uh, enlightening. I think some of the stuff that you might hear will be things that like, okay, yes, I've seen th this in the timber when I've been hunting before, or, and some of it may just be, you know, brand new information for, for those of you. I know we're all at varying, you know, degrees of, of, uh, of, of expertise, if you will, in the, in the deer hunting woods. So I think in this series, there's going to be something for every level of, of hunter. So, um, one thing to mention before we jump into the podcast that had one quick technical difficulty on the upfront of this podcast. So we'll, we'll catch Dr. Uh, Dr. Strickland here kind of in his answer to his uh, mid answer of his first question, which is really just his, his background. And we'll just kind of dive in. So before we do that, let's take a quick second though, to talk about our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. First and foremost, we are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree treatment equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get yourself a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. I've actually been using my wicked tree saw quite a bit to kind of make my way through the uh, through the swamp because that stuff is nasty thick and I kind of have to uh, saw my way through through some of my stand locations and 
We're also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The Trek camera comes in, at, is the newest camera or the addition to the family, and it comes in at a $145 price point. Has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift Series camera, same five-year warranty and unmatched customer service policies, 0.7 second trigger speed, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a single, simple, simple, single line backlit LED display. You also get about 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you like what you see, save yourself 20 bucks and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers. This is the time of year where we're heading off to hunting camps and, and, and long hunts. So get yourself a kick-ass cooler on a kick-ass working man's budget. Get yourself a Glacier Cooler, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. And with that, let's go ahead and jump in midstream with Dr. Strickland. His first response here that we'll that we'll start with is him just kind of giving us a little bit about his background as a deer biologist and a hunter. Like many people that would be listening, um, I, I grew up hunting, and you know it's it's a really long story, but the short of it is, um, I was totally obsessed with hunting and with deer. And I was in eighth grade when I learned that there was this profession called wildlife biology. And at that point, I, I never strayed. I never had anything else in my life. I never had, after that, I never had the, the fireman, the police officer, the astronaut, and none of that ever faced me. I was like, I'm going to be a deer biologist. And so I was lucky enough there. Uh, the University of Georgia was right there in my backyard with a wonderful wildlife biology and, and deer biology program. So I got my undergraduate degree there. Uh, those guys set me up with an internship uh, in Texas, in South Texas, on a big 60,000-acre ranch. Um, so I went and interned there for about a year, uh, was able to get into graduate school then uh, at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. So I did my master's degree in South Texas. Uh, and then after graduation, I moved to – my wife and I moved to Mississippi – and after working here at Mississippi State a few years, it turned into a Ph.D., and uh, I've kind of been here ever since. Um, the things that I do, my appointment is, is a little bit different than your, your standard professor in that uh, my classroom is landowners. Hmm. So, you know, your, your, your typical professor, you think they're going to be uh, in the classroom teaching college students and then doing research. Um, and mine is designing outreach programs. And so I'm going to be I do workshops a lot. I do seminars a lot. I write popular articles a lot because within my job and then also with my conviction, I, I don't think science um, should be kept at the university. Mm. You know, so my, my role is making sure things regarding deer biology and management get to people uh, that, that can use it and, and improve their lives, improve their hunting. So that's largely what I do. And one of the, the favorite things uh, we like to do with our research here uh, with the MSU Deer Lab, we like to do research that has real practical application. So things can be very complicated. Some of the topics we might get into, really complicated, but we like to make sure they always have uh, an end result that can help somebody. Um, and one of my favorite things to do is, is myth busting mm. and, and attacking some of these topics that people have always thought, 
you know, when you read in a magazine or see on TV, it's just everybody expects some relationship to be true. And then we apply the tools of science to see if it's true or not. And then we get on podcasts or popular articles or seminars and we spread the word. Nice. That's, yeah. that's kind of a nutshell what, what we do. Nice. Yeah, I like the uh, the idea of, of myth busting because I think hunters, we are very much uh, guilty of confirmation bias. Right. We do it in that fact that we we will hunt the same stands over and over again because we had success there once before. And we allow that to kind of cloud our judgment as to what we're seeing and what the woods are telling us and how it's how things are kind of unfolding before us. Um, you know, it's somewhat in the search of wanting to be right <laughs> to a degree and mm-hmm. sometimes don't put ourselves in the best position to to be successful because of that. So I like the idea of, of, of myth busting. So with that. Let's go ahead and dive into our first section here, kind of just talking about movement at a, at a higher level. I think I want to just start with the basics here first, because, you know, I think when people think about movement, they get in, they quickly kind of dive into a bunch of, you know, granular kind of subjects of movement, you know, whether it's precipitation and, and we can get into some of these later in, in the series. But at a high level, it's like, you know, you know, what is the elementary kind of version of like why deer are moving? Like, what is the purpose of their movement? It, it's pretty clear and simple. Movement is needed to survive. Mm-hmm. So you're either going to move to uh, acquire resources, whether that be shelter or cover for thermal regulation, whether that be cover for uh, from predators, uh, and then to acquire food. And mm-hmm. it, it's really is, and, and it's no different from us, Clint. You know, same reasons we move. Right. Yeah. shelter acquire food now we have a job so we can go buy food but if we if we didn't we would have to toil and, and go uh find our food you know out in the woods in the forest right yeah just like when we were hunter gatherers right yeah and so is there so that so the survival kind of aspect of it do we lump the breeding aspect of it into the survival is it just kind of a subcategory of survival or is like breeding kind of considered a separate type of movement in general yeah, think think of it as a subcategory. We we use this fancy word. Uh, ecologists, biologists, it's, it's called fitness. Mm-hmm. And what we look at the the goal or driving uh, motivation for for every animal is to perpetuate its genes. And so you do that in two ways, you know, and that's how natural selection works is, you know, these genes get carried on generation after generation. Uh, and, and so what we see is that breeding is going to be a necessary part of their fitness or their genetic longevity. Uh, eating and not being eaten is kind of the short-term manifestation of I've got to, to live right. and I've got to eat. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that not being eaten. That sounds like a pretty positive thing, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty important to a deer, you know, <laughs> yeah. not, not to die while it goes to, to find white oak acorns. It's a pretty important part of the equation. <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I want to talk now just a little bit about how we classify deer movement. And I did a little bit of my homework because, you know, I think we, when we, again, when we think about it, we think about it in terms of, of hunting, right? As opposed to, um, how deer live, maybe is might be one way to put it. And so what I want to kind of cover here and kind of talk about each one of these is, you know, we have dispersal as a form of movement. We have annual home range and seasonal home range, which I'm not sure if those are two distinctly different ones or if they're kind of the, the same, just different kind of categories of, of the same. And then we have 
migration and excursions, right? That we kind of, that kind of categorize the different types of movement. So I've done my homework a little bit. So I at least am aware that those are the different types of movement that we, that, that we, that we watch and recognize. So starting with dispersal, can you explain and kind of talk a little bit about what that is and, and why it specifically happens? Yeah. So dispersal typically it, it, and you're going to get tired of hearing this, Clint, is that I'm going to say on the average and typically <laughs> because a deer is never going to be, you know, they're never going to follow the rules exactly. There's always going to be variation from individual to individual. Typically, the most common form of dispersal occurs at the yearling age class. And commonly that is going to be uh, yearling bucks, you know, so mm-hmm. depending on where you're at, about 70% of the yearling bucks are going to disperse from their, their natal range or the, the range they grew up with, with their mom and sometimes with their sibling. And, you know, the most um, simple explanation, an explanation that has never been disproven uh, is it's a way to minimize inbreeding. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, it is a way to minimize competition for resources. So if a mother at a year of age, year and a half of age, through aggression, she basically shuns the, the boy and says, you've got to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's got to move. He's got to grow up and, and take on, you know, develop his own new home range and territory. Um, and again, because you don't want sons, you know, breeding with mothers and breeding with sisters. Right. So that's kind of a to, to minimize inbreeding is, is the point of that. Right. And so the impact of that from a hunting perspective, if we, if we tie it back to hunting, because, you know, a lot of a lot of folks and, you know, and I've helped manage, you know, some some family properties and stuff like that, too. It's like when you when you start talking about a herd of deer, you know, that kind of um, a herd to manage effectively takes a certain amount of acreage, I'd imagine, or at least that I've, I've kind of read and heard mm-hmm. in different places that most people don't have access to. So that's kind of the one thing. And even if you do that buck that it was born on your property with knowing that dispersal is occurring, the bucks that you're seeing during hunting season likely don't live on your property or did, weren't born and grew up on your property. Is that, is that fair? That, that, that is precisely correct. And, you know, I would add to that Clint and I wouldn't say it's as much of a hunting thing. It, it's more of a management thing. Okay, and good point. When you, when, when you start thinking that that cohort of bucks, of yearling bucks that was born on your property, seven out of 10 of those are going to set up home ranges off your property. It makes uh, strategies like culling rather mm-hmm. futile. Right. To think that you're going to cull these yearling bucks and improve genetic quality uh, when the bucks that are coming onto your property weren't you know, subject to that. So it has really big management implications. Right. Which kind of goes to really kind of understanding your neighborhood, you know what I mean? Because you mm-hmm. are all, you're really kind of hunting your neighbor's deer, so to speak, right? Like to, to a degree, because if they're coming from somewhere else, it's, you know, his, here, she's habitat and it, the impact on the local herd in general is as important as what you're supplying because you're all going to kind of be transferring deer back and forth between your properties over time. Yeah, that it, certainly when they're young, mm-hmm. certainly when they're yearlings, there, there's going to be a really big exchange. Now, as they get older, you know, typically that type of behavior is going to decrease. So typically when a buck's getting to be three or four years of age or older, uh, they kind of be- become much more sedentary. So mm-hmm. that that would be a case where your habitat management is affecting the bucks that reside on your property. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, so that's kind of a nice segue as they, as they get older, because I want to kind of move in next to kind of, to talk about home range, 
you know, because we hear people talk about home range, you know, in hunting and in management, and you know, this is this buck's core area or his annual home range and so forth. Um, so I just want to get a sense of, you know, you know, because there's a there's folklore out there as to what that size might look like. Uh, maybe might might be one way to frame it. I wanted to get a sense from you, from the studies and the research that you've been involved in or have been privy to kind of read or be involved with, what is the typical size of an annual home range? And is there a difference between a buck's home range and a doe's home range in terms of size? Yeah. So speaking on the average and in generalities, you know, it's going to vary from place to place Mm -hmm. and it varies a lot by resources. So think of that. When when resources are scarce, you have to move more to to acquire them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but the old rule of thumb is still a pretty reliable rule of thumb. And that is about a square mile. Mm-hmm. So for a doe, it's probably going to be a little shy of that. It's probably going to be 400 to 500 acres. Uh, for a buck, it's probably going to be six, seven, 800 acres, except for during the rut. And mm-hmm. then you might see another 25% increase there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been studies that have shown that a doe may spend her entire life within, you know, two or 300 acres. Hmm. So it is just really dependent on cover food, water, and how they're distributed on the landscape as to how much they have to travel to get them. Right. And I think you kind of hit it right there. It was one of my next question, questions was, so I'm assuming that annual home range is really kind of dictated by the needs of cover food, water being met within that specific area, right? Yeah, and additionally, uh, the seasonal changes that happen with habitat in terms of what foods are available. So, so you can real easily you can imagine if you were in an agricultural region, and when soybeans hit the ground, there's going to be a lot of deer shifting their movements to take advantage of those soybeans. Once those soybeans are off the landscape, their movements are going to shift to take advantage of another food source. So that's kind of an artificial example. But in reality, uh, throughout the growing season and then during the winter, you know, naturally, that that same phenomenon is occurring. Right. And and that speaks to something you talked about, Clint, with um, annual versus seasonal home ranges. And so typically when we see a seasonal shift within an annual home range, it's mostly because of food. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. So when you say a shift within, so I, I picked up on the, the word within, um, is the seasonal home range contained within the annual home range to where that seasonal home range won't be outside those those boundaries? Is is that fair or, or that, is that not yeah, true? Yeah, that's fair. That, yeah. That's fair. And it kind of depends on how you define it. So um, whenever you see studies in the future, Clint, you need to pay close attention to the, the phraseology or terminology, whether they said mm-hmm. this is an annual home range or a seasonal home range. Right. And, you know, and, and when you think about us, when we're making our calculations. It's, you know, we're looking at those points on a map and we're just, what is our time reference? Do we want to look at all the points that occurred from January to December or do we only want to look from, you know, May to September, mm-hmm. something like that? Now, do you see on the whole, like when they're transitioning between these two, two ranges, is it, is the timing pretty consistent or do you ever notice that bucks will transition earlier or later or or later than does? Um, you know, is it geographically, do they transition at different times? I know, you know, there's some seasonality in terms of, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall, the, how the, the photo, photo period is kind of reacting with the different areas of the country during those times. But on the whole, like, you know, is it, is it pretty kind of consistent, I guess is what I'm asking when they transition. You know, Clint, that that is a good question. I do not have an answer for it. And um, 
And that might be because I've just never really seen any evidence or I'm not familiar with any evidence that has demonstrated there's a real difference that occurs there. Right. Um, you know, the big the big difference with Bucks, of course, is going to be when the bachelor groups are breaking up. Yeah. When summer is transitioning into fall, they have a bunch of physiological changes that are taking place. Um, yeah. So if I may, if I may take some liberty to think out loud with you, um, I would hypothesize that uh, the Bucks are going to shift sooner than does, hmm. at, at least in the latitudes that I'm dealing with, because when those bachelor groups are breaking up is going to be when does are still tending to fawns. Right. And so I would think a, a, a doe, of course, has already set up a range where she's going to have that fawn and rear that fawn um, that, that may be a little bit later when that occurs for does. Right. Now that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I would think that I, I would have to, I would have to agree with you and I may have, uh, I may have wittingly planted that, that question. So I would, uh, get you to hypothesize just a little bit <laughs> you dangled the carrot in front did, of me and i took it yeah. i did dangle the carrot just a little bit <laughs> no that's great um you know i i would happen to agree with that because it makes more sense there is you know if you think about it just in terms of survival terms if if a doe is comfortable in a specific area i would imagine it would take more to move her because she is not only concerned with kind of her own safety but is concerned for the safety of another right so she has right. a little less liberty to be to, to be kind of willy nilly and free for, for travel and setting up new camps before it's kind of fully assessed. A threat assessment is done for lack of a better way to put it. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about wicked tree gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need tools that can keep up. We don't baby our gear taking on whatever mother nature dishes out. Check out wicked tree gear, hand saws and pole saws at wickedtreegear.com. Use the promo code truth to save yourself 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. So. Yeah, she see she essentially has an appendage, an extra appendage there for a couple months. It's yeah. taking care of that fawn. Yeah. yeah. So and let me modify that, Clint. Just yeah. so um, you have listeners from all over the country. Um, it, it's obviously that would be different in the South than up North. Right. So if you're in Michigan and fawns are being dropped in May, you know that relationship would be a lot different than if you're in parts of Mississippi where they're not being dropped until August. Right, so those transition times would be would be right. would be skewed based on that. Right, yes, right, exactly. So let's move to to migration. Now I know that this is more of a topic that is relevant, probably to you know what I'll say is like big game, whether it's caribou or, or what have you that you know that we we think of in terms of migration. But are there any instances of migration in in whitetail herds, or is this more specifically just kind of classified and kind of contained within those larger, those those, uh, larger game animals. Yeah. Mainly, you know, caribou would be a great example. And then of course, waterfowl and birds is a great example. And Mm -hmm. that, and that's simply a phenomenon of, um, the, the land where they are residing becomes inhospitable. So what may be fantastic summer range for a caribou turns out to be terrible winter range for them. And then they are a larger mammal, and so they are able, you know, to move a long distance. So mm-hmm. they can kind of uh, take advantage of the the changing landscape. Mm-hmm. And we do even see some of that behavior in northern deer herds. And you've probably heard of the deer yard before. Yeah. Yep. When you start getting in the upper Maine and, and into Canada, uh, UP of Michigan, and things like that, and, and that's kind of a 
the same difference there is that they it's, it's an adaptation built within them to to move in a response to uh, you know weather conditions and forage conditions and things like that and it's just a mechanism to increase survival mm-hmm. they essentially have to move to increase the probability of living through the winter right and so it feels like that's something that could be an insight for some some hunters that live in some of those areas that you know, that live in those areas where they're going to have harsh winters, you know, in those parts of the country where they may be able to kind of play off that, what I'll refer to as this probably, this, I'm sure this is not scientifically correct, <laughs> but that, that smaller kind of migration movement, is that kind of a fair assessment? Yeah, p- probably so. I mean, I, I guess defining migration is a continuum, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what distance is officially migrated or not, but yeah, on a much smaller scale, that would probably be the case. And, you know, what a lot of researchers have found up in northern environments, too, is that there's a lot of fidelity mm. for the places they go, like deer yards. And I was talking with a biologist. That, in fact, I did a uh, Deer University podcast episode with, with the fella, uh, Joe Wiley. And, and something I didn't know is that deer have a tremendous amount of fidelity for those areas. And even when you make that area inhospitable to them, for example, if you went in and clear cut all the timber so they had no browse, they still go and hang out in that area, hmm. even though it's obviously not an advantage to them now. Right. But it's almost like it just gets ingrained in them that this is the time of year I need to be in this spot. Yeah. That's interesting. So, because I've also heard, it, it, sim, you know, not the same but similar, where you know a, a deer herd, you know, or a, or a portion of a deer herd that lives on X farm in Iowa. We'll just pick Iowa as an example, or Mississippi, or anywhere. And there was a field that had a fence row that had was there for a hundred years. They removed the fence row, and then they would watch the deer, and those deer would still walk that same fence row, like it like the fence was still there for years. Yeah, what that's is that's amazing? Is there any like what what causes that? I mean, is it just is there something at, at some point where it just becomes genetic? I mean, is that something like I don't know? Can you pass something like that genetically? Like that that kind of like navigational trait? I think I don't think that would be genetic. I think that would be inherited behavior. Hmm. So I my mom did it and I did it with my mom. And then when I'm part of that social group, that's the way we always did it. And then when you take that barrier away, it's almost like, again, that that's just their routine of what they're doing. But but over time, you know, as <clears throat> excuse me, as generations change, you know, I could see the behavior changing then. Right, right. Because I, I think you would need an end of, you know, a, a mother, you know, to pass that behavior on to you. Right, right. Makes sense. So the next kind of high level version of movement that I want to kind of touch on is is something that we we do, I think, as hunters talk about some. And it might explain some of what we see when we see just random deer show up that we haven't seen before, and that's excursions. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of, you know, explain what, you know, we, what an excursion is and, and, and why it happens. And, and third part of the question, I guess, if I could, is does this happen outside of the breeding season? Because I think a lot of folks, hunters especially, will see a random deer come through on rut that they never saw before, and that might be an excursion. And so does it happen outside of those type of breeding times? Yeah, this is a really exciting topic right now and and something we just really didn't have access to experimentally, you know, 10 plus years ago, you know, when we had the evolution of uh, GPS collars. Mm -hmm. You know, we we talk about this all the time is that years ago in these studies, 
we would go to that same area where we knew we were going to find that buck and we're, we've got our waving our antenna and we're listening for the beep, beep, beep and we never can find it. Mm-hmm. And we would always conclude, huh, well, uh, maybe he died, maybe, maybe a poacher, maybe the collar stopped working. Mm-hmm. And, and you just conclude that, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with it. But but now with GPS collars, that really revealed a lot of these excursions and how common they are. So to answer your question, bucks and does uh, engage in excursions, and it happens pretty much year-round. Hmm. So it's not ju- it's not an exclusive behavior during the rut. And, and in fact, I think it's a little bit different behavior. Um, what we're thinking now about kind of the purpose of excursions, you know, we're trying to get into a deer's head here, mm-hmm. which is difficult. Right. So all we can do is kind of look at their behavior, you know, and propose hypotheses. Um, but it appears with excursions, it's more of a prospecting type behavior. Hmm. It's a um, I live in a you know, I'm going to I'm going to act like I'm a deer here. I live in a changing world. And there's always going to be new pressures tomorrow. There's going to be hunters. There's going to be predators, all sorts of things. I need to get out and survey the landscape around me. And, you know, I may find somewhere that if I get pressured in this spot, I can move to. Or when I'm doing my excursion, I may find a situation that is better than the one I'm currently in. Hmm. And so you'll typically see an excursion, it might be a day or two or three. Sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a couple days. Um, but but both bucks and does will do that. Um, during the rut, I wouldn't necessarily call that an excursion. I think that is looking for breeding opportunities. Hmm. Okay. I don't think it's prospecting for a new a place to live. I think it's uh, socially looking for hopefully, um, you know, a new female to breed with. Right. That's interesting. Cause you know, it, it makes, it makes sense that, you know, they're kind of looking for, it's almost like a job interview, right? Mm-hmm. They're always mm-hmm. kind of looking for the, the next best, you know, next best opportunity. And it, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm curious, have, have the longer excursions, do they occur typically by bucks, does, or in generalities, do they kind of occur similarly? Everything I've seen, Clint, they're, they're pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to vary by individuals, and mm-hmm. so some does will be a lot different. Some bucks will be a lot different, but mm-hmm. I think they're pretty similar. Right. Um, and, and let me give you an example just right here in Mississippi. So we currently have a, uh, a study going on, and we, we've got about 50 uh, bucks, three years of age and older, uh, with GPS collars on them. And so we, we are literally learning this right now here in Mississippi, and we've kind of classified bucks into like three different types. And so we have some bucks that will spend a majority of um, fall and winter will just be a classic home range. They stay within this 800 acres. This is exactly where they're going to be guaranteed. Then you'll have some, about another third of them, that demonstrate that fidelity to that home range, but they have excursions pretty commonly. Mm -hmm. It might be every month. It might be every couple months. And then we have this last group that every couple months, they just set up a new home range. Hmm. So they concentrated their movements in a couple hundred acres. And then when you plot the points on a map, it looks like a dumbbell. 
And then there'll be a few points, you know, uh, where they walked and then they set up in a completely new home range. And so it's been really revealing to us how how these bucks are are differing so much uh, in their movement patterns. That's interesting because what I'm hearing is, is that there are bucks that completely will change their home range based on what they deem to be a better set of resources. Essentially. Absolutely. And, right. and so it's been so revealing with, and you've said it a few times. So there's all the evidence in the world where, oh my gosh, I've, I've had this buck on camera, you know, every day for the past two months and now he's gone. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, he may have gone and set up a new home range. Right. And then, and then the reverse is true. Like you said, I've never seen this buck before and bam, he appears. Right. So I'm curious, like you touched on this a little bit and maybe this, maybe the way I asked this question might be just a little different than I think that you mentioned it, but you know, so is there consistency? So let me back up for a second. So one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about as hunters, you know, is annual patterns. And anecdotally, I've watched this happen with specific deer that I've had show up at certain scrape sites or cameras or whatever, you know, within the same, you know, reasonably speaking, within the same date ranges from year to year, right? So mm-hmm. I'm curious if a buck, if there's consistency with a buck that likes to have an excursion around a certain time of year, if you can kind of bet on it. So for an example, if a buck had an excursion last year and showed up on my property, whatever time of year, let's, let's remove the rut timing because we are we know that that's kind of, you know, breeding, breeding kind of uh, generated. Can you with confidence say that that buck that it would happen annually if if the habitat habitat conditions kind of stayed consistently or stayed consistent you know i i have never looked at that uh closely we we haven't had the type of data structured until now and so that is something we're going to be able to closely examine because we're going to have multiple years of the same buck you Mm -hmm. know where we're going to have his his daily locations i will tell you this though um I have heard of this from enough people that I have a lot of confidence in and trust mm-hmm. to, that there's something to it. Um, do all are all bucks going to do it? You know, I don't think so. Um, but but evidently there's enough evidence where certain bucks and and Clint, I've even heard people say, I've heard some people say to the day. Um, right. I don't know about that, but but I, I've heard a lot of people say to the week, right. third week of October, that buck shows up here. So right. th- there must be something to it. Yeah. So I'm gonna. So I'm gonna. I'm going to borrow a phrase from you from, from earlier. Cause I'm going to hypothesize here about something. Cause as you were talking, it made me, it made me think that maybe some of what we're seeing when it happens, cause the example that I'll, that I'll give is that. So the one property that we have, I won't have the better deer on the property show up until about mid September, late, late August, mid September is when the better deer start showing up. They don't live on the property during the summer. I never really get them in velvet. And that ne- isn't necessarily an excursion because some pe- some folks might think of that as like their annual pattern, like an excursion pattern or whatever. But that probably, as I'm thinking about it, is probably more of them just starting to shift their seasonal range within their home within their annual range. Is that more? I guess would that be more correct or more in line with like what you've seen in research than an excursion during that time of year, kind of changing their their position? Yeah, and especially when you mentioned the month there. So yeah. you've got two different things going on. You've got changes in food, supply, quality, composition, mm-hmm. uh, you, and you also have the social issue of those bachelor groups breaking up a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, so um, I, 
I think what you described would not be an excursion, mm-hmm. but that would just be a seasonal shift. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, those were the high-level questions to get us started on our on our deer movement conversation. So with that, I think we can close down section one. Uh, thanks for coming on and doing section one with me, and I'm looking forward to uh, to part number two. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Dr. Strickland for joining us. Uh, Be sure to check out his podcast, Deer University, for more in-depth reviews of the science behind all things whitetail. And be sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram, and that is at MSU Deer Lab. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you would do those those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. gang the new truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on youtube below any of the truth from the stand videos i've got some new hats beanies t-shirts long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts there's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro dosing adversity so head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code truth t-r-u-t-h and save yourself some cash on the new gear